Get ready here. It's going to be uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. Here's what it says. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my servant, our spirit in those days. You know, Eric Vogelin was a German-American political philosopher who was one of the most insightful thinkers of our time. Born in Cologne, Germany, uh, his family moved to Austria when he was only nine years old. And from there, he graduated from the University of Vienna in 1928 and then stayed on to teach at that school until 1938. But after the Germans annexed Austria, he was removed from his post, narrowly evading the Gestapo, he escaped to Switzerland and then emigrated to the United States where he taught in several colleges, most notably Stanford University. And he died back in 1985. Now having lived through the rise of both communism in Russia and Nazism in Germany, Vogelin set his keen mind on trying to understand what gave rise to both of these movements. I mean, he was seeking to understand not the political and economic situations that led to both communism and Nazism, but rather he wanted to understand the philosophical underpinnings that stood as a foundation for these ideologies that resulted in the deaths of millions upon millions of people. What Vogelin came to believe was that communism and Nazism were not so much ideologies or economic systems, but rather they were religions, political religions. That is, these belief systems functioned as religions for those who embraced them, and they actually paralleled Christianity in their structure. I mean, think about it. What's the fundamental problem in Christianity that Christianity is trying to address? It's man's alienation from God as a result of sin. What's the fundamental problem that communism is trying to address? It's man's alienation from work as a result of industrialization. What did the Nazis see as the fundamental problem? Racial impurity. Who is the Savior in Christianity? It's Jesus who reconciles us to God through his death on the cross. Who is the Savior in Nazism? It was Hitler, the Fuhrer, to whom all must swear allegiance. Who was the Savior in Communism? It was the proletariat, the worker, who will overthrow his capitalist oppressor and take over the means of production. What was the final promised end, goal of Christianity? It's the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth when Jesus returns. What's the promised end goal of communism? It's a future utopia where everyone is equal and all share and share alike. What did Hitler promise? A thousand-year Reich where Germans rule over the whole world. Now, both communism and Nazism shared not only the belief that they could bring heaven on earth, but they also both claimed to be able to transform human nature. Communism claimed that it could produce the new Soviet man, who would be, quote, selfless, learned, healthy, muscular, enthusiastic, and spreading the communist revolution. He will not, only be, he will not be driven by crude passions, but by self-mastery as he sacrifices himself for the good of the working man. And the Nazis? Well, through breeding and training, they sought to produce the Ubermensch, the race of supermen who would rule over lesser breeds of human. Now, both these political religions promised to bring heaven on earth, but in practice, they brought hell on earth. The gas chambers of Auschwitz and the gulags of Siberia showed the delusion in these political religions that resulted in so much death and destruction. But the one thing that both the communists and the Nazis got right was that they understood 
that if you want to change society and bring in a golden age, you have to transform people by changing human nature itself. Well, there is a golden age coming, but it's one that will only arrive after Jesus returns to reign on the earth. And the transformation that will come in humanity will be as a result of God pouring out his spirit upon all mankind, as Joel tells us in this passage. So today we have a very short passage, just two verses, but it speaks of a monumentous event to come, the pouring out of God's spirit. Now we want to further our understanding of what the prophet predicts in this event and then think about our own relationship to the Holy Spirit as believers today. So why don't we pray and then get into this interesting text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy that you help us understand this. Uh, the scripture speaks about this in a number of places. Joel concentrates it in just two verses. But we pray that you would expand our mind so that you fill us with hope and that we walk according to your plan by your spirit. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to ask and answer, answer four questions in our sermon today. Here's the first question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Number two, what is his role in the plan of salvation. Number three, what's actually predicted in this passage here? And number four, when was or when will this prophecy be fulfilled? Who is the Holy Spirit? Now notice I did not ask what is the Holy Spirit. Contrary to what some cults believe, the Holy Spirit is not a, a mere force like gravity or a power like electricity, but rather he's the third person of the Holy Trinity. The Bible reveals and Christians affirm that God is one God who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons share one essence so that they're equal in power and glory and honor. But that the Spirit is a person and not a thing is shown in several passages found in both the Old Testament and in the New. In Genesis 6-3, after reading how the world had become corrupt and filled with violence, we see, read this, Then the Lord said, My Spirit will not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, even among unbelievers, the Holy Spirit restrains a lot of sin in their lives. We're seeing in our society today what happens when God removes that restraint. We plunge into a flood of evil. Well, reflecting on Israel's history of apostasy and turning away from God, the prophet Isaiah wrote in 63.10 this, But they rebelled and, re and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy, and he fought against them. Now, you cannot rebel against gravity, and you cannot grieve electricity. Do you remember when Ananias and Sapphira decided to sell a piece of property and give the money to the church? Well, it was great that they did that, and it was generous. But the problem was they lied about the amount that they had gotten for the property. Peter confronted Ananias, and he said this. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? In other words, you could do whatever you wanted with the money. Why is it then you've conceived to do this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. That shook up the church, and especially more so when three hours later his wife came in and repeated the lie, and she dropped dead as well. Peter said that ultimately these two were not lying to men, but to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. Notice two things. The Holy Spirit is here called God, and he is a person because you can't lie to a power or a force, but only to another person. So the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Godhead. But what is his role in salvation? Well, just like in marriage, the wife and the husband are equal, 
but they're each assigned different roles by God. So in the Trinity, the members of the Godhead are equal, but they all play different parts. The Father is the creator of the universe and the originator and the administrator of the plan of salvation. Jesus said, I did not come to do my own will. I, I did not come of my own initiative, but the Father has sent me, John 8, 28. It's also the Father who chose those who would be saved and draws them to faith in Christ. Celebrating this fact, Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he, meaning the Father, chose us in him, meaning Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Ephesians 1, 3-5. That God the Father is the one who has to initiate salvation in the life of the sinner was affirmed by Jesus when he said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now I have to say, some Christians really get upset about this truth. They say, well, if God has already determined who will be saved, why pray? But think about it. If God doesn't determine who will be saved, why would you pray? What are you asking him to do? I mean, when we pray asking God to save a person, we're assuming that God has the ability to do just that. Well, if the Father's role is to plan redemption and Jesus' role is to accomplish it, that requires that he leaves heaven and was born in a stable in Bethlehem. He grew up living a life of perfect righteousness, and then he offered up that life as a sacrifice for sins. God the Father plans salvation. Jesus, God the Son, accomplishes salvation. And that's why we sing and celebrate that accomplishment every week. Praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. For our sins he suffered and bled and died. Hail him, or he our rock, our hope of eternal salvation. Hail him, hail him, Jesus the crucified. Sound his praises, Jesus who bore our sorrow, love unbounded, wonderful, deep, and strong. Praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent graceness. Praise him, praise him, ever in joyful song. Well, the Father's role is to administer salvation. Jesus' role is to accomplish salvation. The Holy Spirit's role is to apply salvation to the lives of those God has chosen as a gift for his Son. We sing another song that says, Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. I can preach the most passionate and moving sermons. And you can witness using the most clear and powerful and persuasive arguments. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't open up the heart of the person to receive the message, that person will never believe. When the religious leader, Nicodemus, came to visit Jesus at night, Jesus cut through all the small talk and bluntly told this Pharisee that he needed to be born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, I truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, the wind blows wherever it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So it is of those who are born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes a person to be born again. And then he indwells the believer and starts giving him the desires and the power to overcome sin in their life. Paul told the Galatians that they were to walk by the Spirit and then you will not carry out 
the desires of the flesh. Jesus told his disciples that he was going to send forth the Holy Spirit to empower them to do the work that he called them to do. Speaking of the Spirit, Jesus said this, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father (coughs) and you no longer see me. (coughs) And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. John 16, 8-10. Now the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament, working among God's people. But he only came upon certain individuals. One of them was King Saul, but later the Spirit left Saul, and an evil spirit came on him instead. I think it was because of that that David prayed after he sinned with Bathsheba, saying, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from you. No Christian today has to pray that because Jesus promised the Spirit would abide with us forever. Do you remember when God sent the Holy Spirit upon the elders in Israel? Joshua was really upset by this, especially when he saw two guys prophesying. He said to Moses, he said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were all prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses knew that his countrymen needed most a new heart, a change of heart. And he knew that could only come through the work of the spirit. And so he longed for the day that that would happen. Well, that brings us to our third point, our third question. What's predicted here in this passage? Now, in a sense, everything I've set up to this point is just preliminary background information to help interpret our verse that we find in Joel. Let's read it again. It says, It will come about after this that I will pour my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Moses said that he longed for the day that God would pour his spirit out, not just on a select few, but on all his people. And that's what Joel tells us here God will someday do. Not just prophets and priests and kings will receive the Spirit, but your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now one of the important questions that the commentators have to answer as they wrestle with this text is this. How extensive is this pouring out of the Spirit? That is, is this promise only given to those in Israel that God redeems, or is he speaking more widely? Well, the fact that it's to Israel in particular is proved by the fact that he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. But is the promise only for Israel? You might think, well, that's actually easy to answer because it says that he'll pour out his spirit upon all mankind. The problem is that the Hebrew words translated all mankind is more literally translated all flesh. By all flesh, does he mean all the people in Israel? Or does he mean all of mankind? Now, before we answer that question, I want to show you a number of places that predicts that the Holy Spirit will indeed be poured out on the nation of Israel. Isaiah 44, 3, God promises, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Now, notice that's the same that we saw in Joel, a promise of of water being poured out on the land, of abundant rain, but also the pouring out of the Spirit. Prophet Zechariah tells us that this will happen at the time that Jesus returns to Israel. Speaking of that future day when God will gather the surrounding nations to fight against Jerusalem so that he might bring destruction upon those nations, we're told in chapter 12, 10 to 14 this. God says, I will pour out on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Supplications when you're asking God for things. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who's the speaker here? Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him as the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning in Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. What it means is every person is going to find a place to go quietly and they're just going to pour out their hearts to God saying, I can't believe we've rejected your son for 2,000 years. You know, Zephaniah says that when God does this, he said they will loathe themselves. One of the evidence that a person is actually saved is they look back at their sins with loathing. I watched one just the other day. <clears throat> I had Suzanne watch this. It was Michael Knowles. Some of you listen to him. He's a conservative commentator. He's Catholic, devout Catholic. But he had a lady on. I don't remember what her name was, but she was involved in witchcraft in various forms and, and uh, New Age religion, yoga, and all that stuff. She had a, a, her own podcast that was very popular. And somewhere along the line, she had a friend who had always been her friend through all this stuff, who was a Christian, who was praying for her for 20 years, she said. And then this young lady, just one day, all of a sudden ended up getting saved. And so I watched some of the videos from before where she's talking all this witchcraft stuff, and then she comes to her last one, she said, I'm repudiating all this. And what was amazing when she talked to Michael Knowles about this, she said, I can't believe the wicked things that I did. She said, I'm so ashamed of them. But that's the evidence that we're saved. We don't look back at our past sins and say, wasn't that fun? We look back at our past sins and say, how could I have done such a thing? Ezekiel 36, 24 to 28 says this. God speaks, speaking says this. I will take you from among the nations. He's going to gather them from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle you clean, or clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you shall be my people and I will be your God. As promised in Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, a redeemer will come to Zion. Well, that's Jesus. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which I, is upon them, and my words, which I will put in their mouth, shall not depart from their mouths, nor from the mouths of their offspring, nor the mouths of their offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forevermore. After Jesus comes back and the Spirit is poured out on Israel, there will be no Jews born in the millennium who do not become believers. So I can see why the commentators argue that the promise of the Spirit seems to be limited to the nation of Israel. But is it wider than just Israel? Notice that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And as I said, a more literal translation would be, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. But then I did a, a word search in the Bible where all the places where all flesh is used. And whenever it's speaking about hum people, all flesh refers to all humanity. For instance, in Genesis 6, 12, when God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh 
had corrupted their way on the earth. It means all of humanity. So I think that New American Standard Bible is right in translating this, all mankind. Now that passage I just read from Zechariah speaks of a time when God will pour out his spirit on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that they will call on him and Jesus is sent to rescue him. But did you know there's a similar prophecy found about the nation of Egypt in Isaiah 19? Why don't you turn there for a minute? Isaiah 19. We'll look at verses 20 to 25 of Isaiah 19. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, so I'll tell you what it's about. The first, this, this has to do with the end times and the nation of Egypt and how God is going to dry up the Nile. And as a result of it, the fish will all rot and the people who uh, catch fish will all have their nets on the land. I was talking to my son-in-law one time. He's from Egypt. And I said, what would it mean if the Nile do- uh, dried up? He said, that'd be the end of Egypt. Did you know like 85% of the population of Egypt lives within about 40 miles of the Nile, one side or the other? It's a huge country, but everybody lives right there because the Nile is the life of Egypt. That's it. I asked him, I said, how much rain do they get in Egypt? He said, none. He said, all the water comes from the Nile. So after God brings judgment upon them to destroy them, he says this in verse 20. They, the Egyptians, will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And listen to what he does. He will send them (laughs) a savior and a champion who will deliver them. Now, when I was preaching through this before, in Isaiah, a lot of the commentators said, well, the savior or the champion, maybe that's Alexander the Great. Maybe that's this person. Maybe that's that person. Now, I asked the kids in Sunday school one time, I said, hey, kids, who's, if it talks about a savior and a champion, who do you suppose that might be? Well, it's Jesus, obviously. Thus, the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them (coughs) and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, that's modern-day Iraq, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, I grant that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this passage, but it does speak of the Egyptians being called by the Lord and the Lord responding, are calling to the Lord, and the Lord responding by sending the Savior and a champion. And it implies their conversion because afterwards the Assyrians and the Egyptians will worship the Lord. None of that could happen apart from God's Spirit. Once again, it's only the Holy Spirit can open the hearts of sinners so that they believe. So I think it justifies the idea that the Spirit will be poured out on all mankind after Jesus returns. Okay, here's our fourth question. When will this prophecy, when was it, or when is it fulfilled? Now most commentators say this prophecy was fulfilled uh, when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Listen to the words of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This is Jesus' disciples. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house that they were sitting in. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves and resting on each of them. And they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under the heavens, And when the sound occurred, 
the crowd came together and were built, re- bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not these men all uh, who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hear in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Syene, uh, Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear in our own tongue speaking the mighty word, uh, deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some were mocking, saying, oh, they're filled with sweet wine, they're drunk. But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour. It's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel. And it shall come about in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour uh, pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it will come about that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now everything from verses 17 to 21 that I just read there is from Joel chapter 2. And so for most commentators, the answer to the question of when will this be fulfilled is it already has been fulfilled at Pentecost. Peter specifically says that it was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. But there's a few problems with this idea. First of all, I've already shown that the day of the Lord refers to the day of Christ's return. This is proved by 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3. Listen to this. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of Jesus Christ and our gathering together, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. He's saying, look, don't be deceived. The day of the Lord hasn't come. And then he gives a reason. Let no one in any way deceive you, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So from Paul, writing 2 Thessalonians 20 years after Pentecost, he said the day of the Lord is still future. Joel says that the day of the Lord is when this occurs. So it cannot be that the final fulfillment of the pouring out of the Spirit was done at Pentecost. Rather, Pentecost was a foretaste of what God's going to do in the end after Jesus returns. I'll go back to Joel 2.28. It will come about that after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. After what? Well, in Joel's context, it's after the destruction that comes about through this northern army that attacks Israel. So was Peter wrongly applying the prophecy of Joel to these events that happened in Jerusalem? No. The pouring out of the Spirit of Pentecost was an earnest or a down payment of a yet fuller pouring out of the Spirit at the time when Christ returns. I want to just stop here for a quick second. I'm going to make some application at the end, but I want to stop here. Man, is it disappointing to be a Sunday school teacher. Man, is it discouraging to be a Bible study leader. It is hard to be a confirmation teacher. You start every year with big hopes that lots of kids will come. You ask them to invite their friends, and they try. Few of them come. When they come, sometimes they only last a week or two. You see so many people who start the Christian faith and then give it up. 
You see so many people where the seed lands on the thorns and it chokes them out. They, they got other things more important than the thing about God, stuff like that. There's just so much disappointment. But you know what? The time's going to come when Jesus returns. He's going to pour out his spirit. And the Sunday school teachers in the millennium are going to have 40 kids in their class absolutely intent to learn. And if one kid makes a noise, it's says, shh, quiet, we're listening to the word of God. You're going to have people banging on the church to say, come in and tell us about your God. And then those of us who grew up in this age and were resurrected to that age will say things like the old farmers, oh, you guys don't know how good you have it now. You should have seen back in my day. Our job in this age is to call forth people from every tribe and tongue and nation who will be raised up by God to inherit this kingdom. The conversion of the world comes in the next age, the conversion of the nations, mainly through the nation of Israel, for they will finally be the light that God intended them to be. That's what it means when it says that ten men of the nations will grab hold of the garment of one Jew and say, take us up to Jerusalem because you know God and we want to know about God. Don't get discouraged, even though it's so discouraging. Don't give up. Because you remember what God told Abraham? He said, look up in the sky. See all those stars? Count them if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Jesus comes as a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. To subdue the earth and to fill it with those who bear the image of God to the glory of God. All right, let's finish up and draw some conclusions from what we've learned today. Here's the first one. We should learn to argue effectively for the truth of the Bible, but it's the Spirit alone who can change the heart so that a person believes and receives forgiveness. Apologetics is great. Learning witnessing techniques is helpful. But we have to remember that it's not by power nor by might, but by my Spirit that God works and ultimately accomplishes his goals. Number two, that being the case, we need to spend more time praying for people that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts, the hearts of our family members, our friends, our co-workers, to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment so that they will see their peril and cry out to Jesus before it's too late. And number three, for those of us who are already believers, we need to look to and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. In Romans 8, 12-14, Paul says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Spirit will be poured out on all mankind after Christ returns. The Spirit we all, has already been poured out for the church to help us lead God-pleasing lives. Rely on the power of the Spirit. And pray, pray, pray. Let's pray now. Our Father in God, with this monumental task of evangelization and confirming people in their faith that they grow to be in the likeness of Christ, you were wise enough not to leave it ultimately to us. Now, we're tools in the hands of the Spirit, but it's the Spirit himself who changes and applies all these things. Father, it's your Spirit who is given to glorify Jesus. 
So we know that a church that is spirit-filled is one that focuses primarily on Christ. But we don't forget that it's the Spirit who allows us to do so. So Father and God, as we've been going through the book of Joel, it talks about a lot of judgment, but it does leave uh, a hope for those who would trust in Christ. Lord, someday we'll be resurrected and we will see these good days as well. But until then, we pray that we would walk and step with your Spirit and not grieve him by the lives we live. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.